Welcome to a continued reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander. Letters, a letter to a mourning afflicted widow. I know indeed that by this visitation of God, your prospects are sadly clouded, and you may feel yourself to be in a deplorable, helpless condition. Unaccustomed to manage or preside, you are thrown into distressing perplexity whenever you reflect upon your condition. But I entreat you not to indulge these gloomy forebodings. God has a way by which you and your little family can be supported. He will guide, protect, and bless you if you confide in him. You are indeed in an unfriendly world and will frequently meet with selfish and unfeeling men who will not scruple to take advantage of your ignorance of the affairs of the world. But a judge of the fatherless and widow is God, and he invites you in a peculiar manner to make him your refuge. Believe, says he, thy fatherless children, and I will preserve them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Take shelter under the covert of his wings, and commit yourself entirely into his hand, and he will never leave nor forsake you. The more you get into the habit of seeing to your own affairs and transacting your own business, the better it will be for you. Nothing will preserve you more effectually from melancholy and dejection than constant occupation. Females are often found to possess a talent for business which neither they nor others ever suspected. Accept the kind aid of friends, but do not depend upon it. If necessary, engage in some business that will help to support you. Teaching children is a peculiar suitable employment for a widow who has children of her own to be educated. Widows who reside in towns and cities are often unable to obtain the means of subsistence by taking a genteel borders. Know exactly what your income is, and be sure to keep within it your expenses. Debt is ruinous to all, and especially to widows. Take counsel from judicious friends, but seek, in all cases, direction from the Lord. Be strict in the government of your children. Make them obey you implicitly while they are young, and do not spoil them by indulgence. But I do not recommend severity. Of this, however, you will be in no danger. Inculcate religion upon their minds, and pray much for them. Teach them, when old enough, the loss they have sustained, and impress upon their minds the necessity of sobriety and frugality. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Letter to a Bereaved Widower My dear afflicted friend, since I heard of your bereavement, by which the desire of your eyes has been taken away from you by a sudden stroke, I have thought often of you and resolved to write you a letter of condolence, but perhaps every effort to soothe your sorrow at present will prove ineffectual. It is not improbable that the only relief that I can afford you under the heavy calamity which a mysterious providence has laid upon you will arise from the mere expression of my affectionate sympathy. I know that your loss is great and that your heart is more rent and broken than I, who have never experienced a similar bereavement, can conceive. I admit that your loss is irreparable. The beloved wife of your youth and the object of your earliest affection, whose chaste and re reciprocal affection 
cemented a union which nothing but death could dissolve, and which made her as necessary to your comfort as your own heart is gone. Her worth as an affectionate companion and most intimate friend could only be fully known to yourself. She was indeed like a guardian angel who was ever present to aid you, and although she was careful never to leave her own proper sphere to obtrude her opinion in matters of which she was no competent judge, yet in innumerable cases when your spirit was too much excited or even exasperated by the rude collisions with the world, she has gently and almost imperceptibly kept you back from rash expressions and precipitate acts to which your disposition is in such circumstances somewhat inclined. Even when she did not speak a word, the example of her meekness and gentleness has been the means of restraining you or recalling you to a sense of your Christian duty. If I should attempt to lessen your feeling of the greatness of your loss, I should but mock your sincere and deep-rooted grief. No, the chasm made in your earthly enjoyments can never, in any event, be completely filled. That is indeed the true state of the case. I cannot but feel when I think of your dear little motherless children, their loss surely cannot be made up. They can never have a second mother. God has implanted the genuine maternal feeling in no heart but that of the real mother. I could imagine the desolate feeling of helplessness and wretchedness that spreads over your soul with an overwhelming weight. Whenever you look on these beloved babes, who are too young to be fully sensible of the greatness of their bereavement, and especially when you gaze upon the little stranger of whom it can be said that she never saw her mother. No one feels more dependent and helpless in such circumstances than a father, much occupied with the important concerns of the public. And did, did not kind female friends come to his assistance, he would be almost ready to despair. But these are the occasions in which the interpositions of providence are most remarkable. Help comes seasonably, when no helpers seem to be near, and it comes often from unexpected quarters. I have often wondered at the tenderness and acidity of female nurses and their cheerful performance of painful services when their prospect of remuneration was small. I have little doubt but that already, although your affliction is so recent, you have had much cause to adore the kind workings of a benignant providence in your behalf. Your cup is not one of unmixed misery. In the midst of judgment there is mercy. God hitherto has provided for your necessities, and will still provide. Let your trust in him be constant and unwavering. Although the stroke which has laid you low and clothed you, as it were, with sackcloth and ashes, must be attended upon every reflection with piercing anguish, yet let one idea be ever prominent in your mind while thinking on this mournful subject. It is my father's hand which has afflicted this wound and caused this pain. And he doth not afflict willingly, nor jeeves but grieve the children of men. The uninterrupted an uncommon prosperity which has hitherto attended you makes this stroke doubly distressing. From your youth you seem to have enjoyed the peculiar care of providence. Though early deprived of the watchful care of an excellent father, you found friends who almost supplied the place of a father, 
who not only provided for your bodily wants, but the care of your education. And I do not know that your advantages could have been greater had your good father continued to live. And since you have become a man and entered into that course of life which you were permitted to choose for yourself, I know of no one in the same line who has been more successful in his pursuits, who has, who, or who has been able to conciliate more effectually the public favour. Indeed, until this sad event in a moment dashed the cup of worldly prosperity, you might be said to have been like a favourite child, dandled on the knee and exposed to no rude blasts of adversity. But however pleasing such scenes of prosperity, and however ardently we cling to worldly comforts, it is a fact confirmed by general experience that a long continuance of such a state is not favourable to the growth of piety. The heart hardens in this continual sunshine. Imperceptibly we lose the abiding practical sense of our entire dependence and weakness, and are prone to say, like the royal psalmist, my mountain stands strong, I shall never be moved. In such a state we not only have a weak impression of our feebleness and dependence, but a great diminished sense of our own sinfulness, and we know that a deep feeling of our wretched depravity lies at the foundation of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ and of every lively exercise of piety. It is then good, it is necessary, to have the blindness of our minds and the hardness of our hearts removed by some means. Our love of ease would have, done it, have it done in some less painful manner. We are willing to obtain the blessing, but not to endure the chastisement connected with it. We love health, but absolutely dislike the medicine suited to restore it. But could not God carry on his people's sanctification without inflicting upon them wounds so deep and painful? What can he do is not the question. He is sovereign and does what he will and requires submission on our part. Be still and know that I am God. Hear the rod and hear him that hath appointed it. It is enough for us to be assured but this is God's usual and appointed method of leading his chosen people to the heavenly Canaan. They must first pass through briars and thorns of the wilderness. Through much tribulation they must enter the kingdom, although severe afflictions are sometimes sent principally as a trial of faith, patience and submission, as we learn from the example of Job, yet most men who know themselves will not be at loss for reasons to consider their own afflictions as chastisements. One of the first salutary effects of the rod is to stir up to thorough self-examination. It leads to great searchings of heart, awakens a sleeping conscience, and dispels the illusion which worldly prosperity had imperceptibly spread over the mind. The wounded soul starts and trembles, and takes a retrospect of the course which has been pursued. If pride or avarice or luxury has been too much indulged, and has led to unchristian behaviour, those indulgences and those actions, the turpitude of which was concealed, now stand forth in bold relief in the view of the awakened mind, and the penitent backslider falls prostrate, confesses the enormity and ingratitude of his sins, and earnestly cries to God for mercy and for healing. And thus, when we are at ease, 
and living in prosperity, how cold and careless are we in our devotional exercises, engrossed with worldly business, and too well satisfied with creature comforts, we forget God and lose sight of heaven. From this state of alienation we are seldom reclaimed by the word alone. Indeed, in such a frame, the truth can scarcely be said to have access to our minds. But when the severe stroke of our father's rod is experienced, we begin to feel with keen sensibility and to pray with unwanted fervency and importunity. And the afflicted child of God, thus arrested, convinced and humbled, cannot rest until he obtains some new evidence of reconciliation, some manifestation of the love and favour of his offended father. My dear sir, this affliction, severe as it is, may hereafter appear to have been in its consequences a most important blessing. In view of it, you may cry out, it was good for me to be afflicted, for before I was afflicted I went astray, but now I keep thy statutes. This dispensation may not only use, may not, may be not only useful, but necessary. It is not extravagant, nor inconsistent with the unchangeableness of God's purpose of mercy for his people, to say that severe chastisements may be indispensably necessary to their salvation. His promise of eternal life to believers is not irrespective of the appropriate means. The Apostle Peter speaks of a need be that some should be in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith, says he, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul exalts the value and efficacy of afflictions above all comparison when he says, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But observe, he calls them all light and momentary, that is, in comparison with eternal blessedness. As he says in another place, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Is not the fact that we are so cast down and overwhelmed with afflictions an evidence of the weakness of our faith? If eternity was in full view, we should be so deeply affected with our bereavements, especially when we have good reason to hope that our departed friends are happy in heaven. They are only gone before to the place where we hope soon to follow them. I would say then, gird up the loins of your mind. You are in the vigour of life, and in the midst of your days, and your Lord has much work for you to do. The talents which he has committed to you should be most diligently improved. The best cure for grief is unceasing activity in the cause of the Redeemer. I seem to feel assured that this will be a new era in your life, and although you have not been idle, nor unconcerned for the glory of your Master, yet methinks the remainder of your days will be far more fruitful than the past. I do trust that your light will burn with a more bright and steady flame. Henceforth, you will not be liable to look for a paradise on this side of heaven, and you will be more disposed than ever before to concentrate your affections on those things which are above. 
And as God's people are a poor and afflicted people, for the most part, he may be preparing you to be a comforter of the mourners in Zion. For none are qualified for this office, but such as, having tasted the bitter cup of sorrow, have been made partakers also of divine consolation, as Paul says to the Corinthians. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all afflictions, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. It would be utterly superfluous to dissuade you from thinking soon of a second marriage. Your own feelings render every such idea abhorrent to your mind. Perhaps it is indelicate and unkind to mention the subject at all, but as human feelings undergo a great change in the lapse of a few months, and I may not have the opportunity of speaking to you again, I would say, be not hasty in this matter. Consider long, and pray much over the subject, before you determine to place a stepmother over your children. I do not wish to lay any heavy burden on your shoulders. I do not wish to say that it may not be a duty in due time to seek another companion. But I do say, proceed cautiously and conscientiously in this business. I do believe that many make a sad mistake in entering a second time into the bonds of wedlock. As a prudent wife comes from the Lord, ask counsel of him. That concludes the reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.